0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. There's a scandal of sorts brewing in the Buddhist world, and it involves a former guest on this show, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, who wrote a book about the art of conversation and is the leader of uh Shambhala International was on the show a couple months ago and uh has subsequently announced that he's stepping aside amidst an investigation into his alleged sexual abuse of students. Uh and it goes beyond that for Shambhala International, which is a big organization and and um you know, in, 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 at least by meditation standards, a pretty big organization has centers all over the place, all over the country and in Canada and perhaps even beyond. But uh, according to Tricycle, which is a Buddhist publication, uh, the the entire governing council of, of Shambhala is stepping aside and uh, the Sakyong himself is going to stop teaching and step away from his administrative duties until the investigation is finished. So this is uh, – Quite a compelling peg. That's a term of art from the news uh, world. We we use this term news peg, which is kind of an event in the news that gives us a reason to do a story. Spe- uh, what every any specific story that we might be interested in, uh, we we try to peg it to current events. So, uh, right now, for example, right around uh, the. Supreme Court uh, nomination uh, that President Trump has just made. We might do stories pegged to that, looking at, say, uh, the issue of abortion or campaign finance. So I just throw that out there by way of an example that the, the, uh, this, what's going on with our former guest, the Sock Young, is a good peg for our current guest this week, who is Scott Edelstein, who has written a, uh, an entire book or two entire books, uh, about the issue of, spiritual teachers and their behavior and what you as a uh, practitioner or potential practitioner need to know he's written uh, a book called sex and the spiritual teacher and also the user's guide to spiritual teachers so we could hardly have found a more timely guest i will i will say before we play his interview that the interview was recorded before uh this uh headline broke but uh, we're we're We've expedited the posting of this interview because of uh, the afore- aforementioned news. So we'll get to Scott um, in, in a minute. Uh, but first though, let's uh, let's do some some uh, voicemails and uh, let me just give you my little caveat, which is that uh, as you know, I'm not a meditation teacher, not a spiritual leader, not a mental health expert, just a guy who writes books about meditation and uh, does a little bit. And so I'll do my best to answer these questions, which I have not heard in advance. Uh, So here we go. Here's call number one.
1: Hi, Dan. This is Madeline from Southern California. You've recently mentioned a lot about the research you did on habit formation and behavioral change. I was wondering if you could share any authors or book recommendations you have for your listeners who are trying to form better habits or change habits for different areas of their life. In particular, I have young toddlers at home. And I'm curious if there's any books or research about habit formation for little ones to make sure we instill good habits as they grow up. Thanks so much and love all your work. Bye.
0: Thank you. I probably overstated how much research I did into behavior change. I did do a little bit, um, but it wasn't super exhaustive. That said, uh, the, the book that comes to mind is one from uh, a former guest on this show who's actually, she's been on twice, uh, Gretchen Rubin. She wrote a book called The Four Tendencies, which I have found to be really useful. And she comes up with this classification for all human beings that he, she, she's of the view there are four types uh, that uh, when it comes to uh, habit formation, there are four uh, four types. I can't recall them all right now. Like the, one of them's a rebel, another's an obliger, Anyway, I, I found it very useful to think of uh, to f- to classify myself within that, and to then think about the tips she has for each type of person uh, about how to uh, to instill healthy habits, uh, given whatever your tendencies are. And she does talk, if, if memory serves, about being able to kind of diagnose. That might not be the right word, but diagnose what 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 tendency. Uh, your children might have and how to then work with them. So check that out, the four tendencies. Call number two.
1: Hi, Dan. This is Sean from Salem, Oregon, and I'm not sure this is really a question, but I'm sure you can expand on this. As Oprah would say, it was kind of an aha moment I had while recently listening to your podcast interview with Katherine Price. I have to admit, when I first heard the intro regarding breaking up with your phone, I thought, I'm not sure I really want to listen because I really don't care for my phone already, and I just kind of see it as a necessary evil. My aha, however, came um, as that in the last few weeks, I've been really trying to figure out how do I make more time for meditation, which I know is a common question, and I already knew that I would voluntarily pick up my phone to look at social media purely out of boredom, not even to be an active participant, just a voyeur. In fact, I'm really conscious of it. Like, I allow myself to be bored with my phone. I give myself the excuse. It's just 15 minutes. I just want to check out. It's the end of the day. That's it for me. Um, I think you can already see the aha that I had from that Um, thought. So now my checkout time is my meditation time because I have no excuse. I had previously discovered Jeff Warren's 10 breath meditation on your 10% happier app, which I love. And I mean that just taking 10 breaths sometimes can be enough, but to now have 15 minutes that I know I can commit is really, I guess it makes me hopeful. So I just want to say thank you for that. And you never know when you stick around and listen to an episode that you might glean from it. And there were many more gems in that Catherine Price interview. So I just want to say thank you.
0: So interesting that you bring up Catherine Price, because I happen to be re-listening to that episode because uh, I've been thinking a lot about my own relationship with my phone. And there are so many gems in that episode. She's really smart. Um so Catherine Price wrote a book called "How to Break Up with Your Phone," and we we posted it a few episodes ago. If you're confused uh, uh, by the reference, worth going to check that out. And so, yeah, it's it. I think your aha moment is great. I mean, the in the in the world of uh, habit formation, there's this expression. I think it's cue, routine, reward. I think that's what it is. That that you when you're thinking about creating a habit, you, there's the cue. Uh, or maybe this is already true just of your existing habits. There's the cue. So in your case, it's you're feeling bored. Uh, there's the routine. You reach for the phone. And then uh, the reward is you get uh, the little hits of dopamine, of novelty uh, f- from whatever social media likes have accrued or you're actually you're not posting. Your, but whatever new uh, pieces of content have been posted by the people you're digitally stalking, which we all do, uh so you hacked that and you found that the cue is you're feeling bored and you changed – you you substituted the routine with uh, I'm going to meditate and you have an entirely different reward. And that is textbook awesome. And that's – I mean that is something that's scalable into so many – first of all, it's scalable and adoptable by so many people listening, but also it's scalable in other aspects of your life. Let me just say – one. so bravo. Let me just say one last thing, which is that I am not a Luddite, uh, nor is Catherine Price, interestingly. Um, I am, you know, allowing yourself the luxury of 15 minutes of looking at Instagram. I do not begrudge you that. However, what I think you've wisely seen, and I think this is something we all need to examine, is that those 15 minutes probably weren't making you happy. And the, that if they if the fifteen minutes are making you happy, then I I say go for it, luxuriate in those fifteen minutes. I'm not anti pleasure, but um, I am anti you know voluntary misery. And it sounds like you had the wisdom and the self awareness to see that those fifteen minutes could be better, more fruitfully used. Um, so like I uh, and I'm not anti indulgence. It's but it's it's worth seeing that these little indulgences. It's it's like people ask me all the time about the fact that I gave up sugar. And I just came to the realization that this thing that I thought was an award – a reward was making me miserable. So it's not that I'm um, an an ascetic. Uh, It's just that I'm I'm stopping the process of banging my head against the wall. Anyway, I love – I know it wasn't a question, but I, I love what you had to say. So thank you for calling and saying it, and it's interesting that I've been thinking about the same stuff. All right, let's get on to uh, the, the topic that we – the rather juicy topic that we brought up at the beginning, which is that sometimes the people who put themselves uh, or find themselves in the position of being spiritual leaders – I'm not in love with the term spiritual – but people who teach us meditation or teach us all sorts of things in this space that is often referred to as spirituality, uh, sometimes they abuse their power. And um, – it's a good thing to know if you're going to be – if you're shopping, for uh, for lack of a better term, guru. Um, and uh, Scott Edelstein, uh, who is a writer and a freelance editor, and um, he uh, he's also been a practitioner for a long time um, of meditation and has followed a couple of prominent spiritual leaders. He has taken it upon himself to write a couple of uh, short uh, – Slim slim volumes uh, on the subject. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there are Sex and the Spiritual Teacher, and then he followed up with The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers, which just came out in 2017, and ha- has a lot of provocative things to say. So here he is, Scott Edelstein. I know a little bit about what we're going to talk about today, okay. but I want to start where I always start, which is mm-hmm. how did you start meditating?
2: Ah, uh, I actually started in 1974. I was a student at Oberlin College. And uh, Oberlin, they may still have this for all I know. They had something called the Experimental College. Remember, this was the 70s. So in addition to the College of Arts and Sciences and the, uh, the Music Conservatory, you could get up to five credits in these alternative classes, some of which were taught by faculty, by students, and so on. And there was something taught uh, called Zen Meditation. And you got two credits for it. So I learned it there.
0: What, what, why, why did that seem attractive to you?
2: Um... Well, I'll give you two reasons. Okay, the first is a non-verbal reason, right? It just attracted me. Why? Um, yes, you were attracted to your wife. Yes, I was attracted to my wife, and I could give you reasons, but I'd be mostly pulling those out of my butt. The fact was, I felt the attraction. So I felt an attraction. I buy that to meditation. I buy it. But over and above that, I had, I would say. You know I don't want to in, in any way equate myself with you, but I will say I had a uh, a high energy, nervous uh, son of of New York Jews' personality. Okay? <laughs> and that just you know, it it created stress. it created anxiety. And I just thought, you know, I'd like to like to see what this is about. and And I took to it immediately. It made intuitive senses the wrong word, but it felt right in the body. It felt right in the heart, the mind, and the gut.
0: Did you see any changes in yourself as a consequence?
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, but, um, you know, this whole culture uh, looks at everything in a kind of either medicinal or prophylactic way, either preventing something or improving something or fixing something. Modern culture. Modern culture, yes, yes point taken. So um, I never looked at it that way. I mean, yes, I could roll out all the benefits of all the ways that it ostensibly made me better, a uh, better human being. Um, made me more human, made me who I am. But you could argue that it wasn't so much the meditation. And I would say, who cares? Um, you know, you can make a great argument for how sex reduces stress. But that is not the best argument for sex, right? Let's talk about procreation of the species. Let's talk about intimacy. Let's talk about joy and so on. So, sure, I experienced all the things that you and others talk about in terms of how did this improve you? How did this make you healthier, happier, more connected? Uh, How did it improve your life? But honestly, Dan, I think that's selling meditation way short.
0: You make an excellent point. And I feel like this is one of the shortcomings, not only of my public messaging, but of Mm -hmm. my personal practice. Mm -hmm. That, you know, at some point, maybe just meditate for the joy of getting in touch with the fact that you exist mm. and my co-author on a book yep. i wrote about this jeff warren has mm-hmm. made this point to yes. me quite effectively mm-hmm. well effectively in that i heard him mm-hmm. not so effectively in that it made a difference in my practice which is still occasionally uh, a little strivey and utilitarian mm-hmm. but i i it's it's so useful to mm-hmm. hear you make that point
2: can we go down that road a little bit Let's because go, yeah. i'd like to go in in two different directions The first is, you know, you hold a unique place in in our culture um, in terms of who you are and who will listen to you and why they'll listen to you. So I also don't want to pathologize people who are, as you said, quote, selling meditation short, because in fact, what you have done is brought a whole bunch of people to something that they would never have considered. And and so I want to thank you and give you credit and and I'll tip my hat.
0: Yeah, for thank that. you, thank you, I appreciate that.
2: And so, but with that in mind, almost everybody gets into meditation for the in quotes wrong or lesser reasons. And of course, you know you don't expect a um, a twelve year old to understand all the things that a adult would understand, or you don't expect an old person like me who's now sixty three. To have the same understanding of life of someone who's forty or of someone who's eighty-five. So, the, uh, over time in meditation, almost everyone starts out with it as a, in a kind of utilitarian way. Um, uh, oh, I feel better when I when I do it. Oh, I'm a nicer person when I do it. All that stuff. So, um, so th- and and bringing people in in that way is wonderful. That said, over the years, other things start to show up. Other things start to appear. And some of them are even nonverbal, and some of them, and I'm, you know, I'm going to say it, some of them would be classified by some people as mystical, but they're not remotely mystical. They're absolutely realistic. But they're aspects of life, human life, and just life as a being, that start to show up and become clear. Um, and so, is as we do this longer, we have more wisdom to share. And that's exactly what you will be doing year by year is, is having uh, deeper wisdom to share and communicate, and other people will be brought in behind you. And the best part is that because you started where you started, people will not accuse you of going off the deep end. <laughs> so it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm going to test that. Please. <laughs> please, and, I, and, and I'll
0: be watching. Yeah. When you say uh, stuff that people are tempted to call mystical, mm-hmm. what are you talking about?
2: Well, I'll give you an example. All right, so there's a um, there's a, a writer named Steve Hagen. Now, full disclosure, he's an old friend of mine, and he wrote the book, uh, the best-selling book, Buddhism Plain and Simple, that came out um, when you were just a kid. Came out, I think, in 1999, and is still doing very well. And then he wrote a, a sequel, a couple of sequels, but one is called Meditation Now or Never. It's a it's a quite wonderful book. It's about med- uh, meditation, and it teaches uh, the same kind of meditation that you practice and that you teach. But then it goes into all, all – some of these other things that start to show up. Like you start to recognize um, that this whole notion – well, of course, uh, you're going to recognize this. This whole notion of what we call a self, this, this idea of I, you start to see what a, what a crazy construct that is. And it starts to break down. Uh, subject and object start to break down. You start to – and this is not some woo-woo thing. You don't have some um, experience like um, flashing lights or any of that mm. stuff. So it's the exact opposite of mysticism because you're you're looking not at some other thing. You're looking at the reality that was there all along. But you start to see nuances of it. Um, you start to see, for example, uh, I mean one of the common things is that you have no control. Um, and But many adults start to realize that, that, the, that this particular moment um, is the result of hundreds of thousands of different forces that come together. And that no matter how much you try, you're not going to be able to control it. But over and above that, you start to see that, that's, that mm, this, this, this idea of being a self moving through life is not what's going on. There's something else much less explicable, much less uh, quantifiable going on. At the same time, in other words, these two things are not opposites. We're not, you're not flipping from the, um, the deluded state to the enlightened state. The two things are the same. <laughs> now, I could cite people like Huang Po, I could cite people like Krishnamurti, but I won't bother. The fact is, this is what's going on. You asked for some examples, I hope those will suffice. You know, more.
0: I, it's great, it, and so, I think anybody who will have heard you just talk, uh-huh. the preceding paragraphs, uh-huh. which were so well stated, will, uh-huh. will understand that you got pretty deep into the practice post-Oberlin. Uh-huh. So... Uh-huh. um Give me give us a sense of what that entailed. You know, um, how what were you doing uh, to get so deep?
2: Okay. well, one of the I will say that one of the things you understand uh, over time is that deep is a completely inappropriate word for it. You know, know, just like when if you were to start talking about sex as as just it's just so good for your for your LDL (laughs) cholesterol and stuff. I mean, it might be good for all these things, but um, I mean, after a, a short time, it just became part of my life. So I would never think of it as deep or shallow. I mean, it's something I do on an almost daily basis. I did it while waiting in the lobby um, for for you to, to meet with you today. Um, I do it routinely. Um, actually, one of the things that, that, um, that I would say is a result of it is that I just say – I mean, you can call it a prayer if you want. I would call it just a simple acknowledgement over and over and over throughout the day. I say to myself, now, you, you're not in control. This and – and every moment is going to be fresh and new, and you don't know what it's going to be, and you need the help of the entire universe for it. Now, you could call that a prayer to God. I I, I don't see any need to use those words, but you could, you could use them if you wanted to. I don't mean you in particular. I mean anyone. But it's the acknowledgment that the whole universe is coming together in this moment, and this world we live in is being created freshly every moment, and that there is no... Um, there is no script for it we we just have to be uh... Um, as present as we can and live into it and so that is that awareness and that living some people would call going deeper into meditation i would say it's what life calls of us may ask us to do at all times it's simply a way of living now did meditation get me there <laughs> I'd have to go back in a time machine, be me before, not meditate, and see what happened. <laughs> Can't run
0: that control. Exactly, it's hard.
2: I don't know whether it was age or meditation or who knows what.
0: Yeah, no, I, I talk. Uh, I've talked about you know personally. I don't know why I'm less of a jerk now than I used to be, <laughs> but I think it's probably a mix of maturation, meditation, marriage. It's multifactorial.
2: Yeah, here, here, and it does help to marry someone who asks the best of you, and that's my case.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, we we have that in common. All right, so. So, but I, I guess what I was getting at more is in uh, when I talked about the going deep in the practice. I just meant that it, you you really committed yourself to it, and I wanted to get a sense of what what that looked like. Did you stay oh, in the I Zen see. school? Did I you see. go off to Tibet? What I did you? Oh, how see. did you organize your sure. your meditation career?
2: Well, in terms of committing myself to it, you know, com- it is true. Commitment is, is um, an okay word to use, or discipline is an okay word to use. I confess that in my own case, I never thought of it that way. Um, in, the, in the same way that I, you know, I go to the gym. But I don't, I don't think of going to the gym as, as I'm doing this because it's good for my health. Um, I do it because as I got older, my body started feeling crummy, and it felt better when it, when, it, when I worked out. So after I took this course... I moved to um, Minneapolis, and I actually uh, – I was I was just graduating college.
0: Why Minneapolis?
2: Well, I'm, I'm about to, okay, to answer. Sorry, sorry. Uh, no, it's good. It's all good. <laughs> so um, I was up for a screenwriting fellowship. I was a finalist for a screenwriting fellowship in L.A., and I figured – and I asked a friend, the person who had taught this meditation course. I said, well, if I wanted to get to know more about meditation, where should I go? And he recommended a Zen teacher in, in Minneapolis. And a Zen teacher in L.A., both of whom later got caught up in scandals. Their students and uh, yes, um, and, and we can come back to that. We if will it be, but because I didn't get the fellowship, I went to Minneapolis and show and wrote to the Zen Center there, and uh, the teacher there, and he and he he was a he provided a great introduction to me. His name was uh, Dainin Katigiri. And he, uh, he ran the, or he was the, the head teacher at the Minneapolis Sun Center. And so that was my kind of graduate school. I went there for a couple of years, and they had what they call training periods where you do, I think, four meditation periods a day and a talk. And so you roll out of bed about 3 a.m. It's not uh, monastic, but it's not exactly like going to the corner church or synagogue either. So I think I was, um, I was meditating maybe three hours a day and then do, doing other things, talks. Um, listening to talks, writing some talks. Uh, so there was a cohort of us that did this on and off, and I did get official what they call lay ordination. But it's just it, you know it's it's the rough, the very rough equivalent of bar mitzvah or confirmation <laughs> in in uh, Zen Buddhism. But
0: that's a pretty big commitment. I mean, you graduate from college and you uh-huh. go off and get up at three mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning, and mm-hmm. that that's a you. I mean, you may quibble with this, but that sounds mm-hmm. like going pretty deep.
2: Um, well, at the time, you know, one of the great things about being young is you don't have enough to compare it to. Right. Although now that I'm older and I compare it to the life of a news anchor, God, that's way easier than getting up at every possible hour and getting on a plane and, and flying all over the, all over yeah, the they, world. They pay us better. <laughs> yeah, that, point taken. Yes. Um, so I did that for a couple of years pretty seriously and um, and then felt, all right, it's, it's time to, to, to move on. But I've continued to practice ever since then. And since then, I have wound up being the editor or literary agent for many spiritual teachers, and um, i gotten to be friends with many of them, uh, and in many different traditions. And even though I seriously got into that, um, later on, thank God, in uh, Judaism, rediscovered meditation, um, and then many other uh, traditions over the last 30 years have rediscovered it after kind of pushing it away. And so it's been a pleasure to see that, that it's it's showing up now ecumenically as well as secularly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really that's really true. So correct me if I'm wrong, sure. your first book was Sex and the Spiritual Teacher?
2: Well, I'm a writer by trade. So okay. my first book came out in 1975 or 76. Came out a long time okay. ago, but my first book in this area, the first book on the subject was Sex and the Spiritual Teacher in 2011.
0: And why did you want to write that?
2: Because I wanted to make a difference because what goes on uh, when, when spiritual teachers stray, and I should be very clear here that um, the uh, spiritual teachers are like members of every other profession. They range from really wonderful to really terrible and abusive. Here's somebody who people will bow down to, who people will get on their knees before, who people will follow. But not only will these people follow you wherever you go, and do whatever you say, but they have no way to cross-check you. In other words, if you say, I am the best hairstylist in the world, well, okay, show me what you can do with Dan's hair, and they better do a good job. But if you're a spiritual teacher, you can go way off the rails and people will follow you. Have you seen the Netflix? It's a wonderful. It's very wild, recent. Wild, country. wild, wild country. Yes. Have you spoken about it on the air? No, oh, I haven't. Please, let's. Would, would you tell your into uh, tell your listeners a little bit about it, and then I'll add more. It's, sure. it's a must
0: see. So uh, this is not in the Buddhist tradition. It's in the Correct. Hindu tradition. It involves a spiritual teacher who came to be known as Osho, mm-hmm. and it's a multi-part. I think six-part Netflix series. Yes. I think very well done. Indeed. And it tra- they find all this contemporaneous footage of him. He started in, this, in the in the 70s in India. Well, I don't know. He may, maybe started before that. But the story mm-hmm. really starts in the 70s in India, where he's a very popular teacher, attracting a lot of Westerners. Uh, he runs into some trouble that I don't fully understand mm-hmm. in India, maybe having to do with bookkeeping or whatever. Goes with his followers to a remote patch of land in Wyoming? Is Oregon. In Oregon. Yeah. Oregon. Right. Of course. How could I forget Sorry. that? Oregon. Oregon. And um, immediately, tensions flare up between mm-hmm. the locals... And uh, Osho's followers, Mm -hmm. and um, it also comes out in the – I can only tell a fraction of the story, but it also comes out that there's lots of weird sex stuff going Mm -hmm. on and drugs, Mm -hmm. and uh, it ends in tears. And
2: bioterrorism. He was the first bioterrorist in America. He poisoned the salad bars at a bunch of restaurants.
0: Now, was it him or was it his henchwoman?
2: So let me be clear. There were two people. Now he's known as Osho, but he was then known as Rajneesh, Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh. And he appears to be, and you know, if you're a therapist, you're not allowed to diagnose someone with any kind of uh, mental illness. However, I am not a therapist, so I'm come out there and say, he he gives every appearance of being a malignant narcissist or having been one. And then he had a second-in-command who also appeared to be either some high-conflict person, maybe, maybe narcissist, maybe sociopath, who knows, and her name was Sheila. And they're both uh, – Sheila is interviewed widely, and I, I'm grateful that she gave these interviews um, in the documentary. Um, but there was all kinds of criminality going on within that group um, and all kinds of – he was not in, indeed in the Hindu tradition. His was a, a, just a mix, a mashup of a bunch of silly little things. But the point is that people followed him in droves. In a very, in a way similar, there's other people who are being followed that way today. Uh, perhaps you've heard of uh, Chogram Trungpa, yeah, uh, the what? Buddhist teacher.
0: Well, uh, so we've had a lot of followers of Trungpa mm-hmm. on this podcast, including his yeah. son. Yeah. So, so I know, definitely want to talk about him.
2: You know. So the same kind of cult-like situation, same kind of followers who would let him get away with anything, who didn't question him. And we see that over and over with political figures, and it's the same thing going on um, well, with, with some spiritual teachers. Now, I'm talking about the narcissists and sociopaths here. There are lots of great spiritual teachers out there, and some mediocre ones. I'm talking only specifically about these people now. And I was very concerned that there were so many of them out there. No one had written anything uh, other than, there's a, a, a very good but almost unknown book um, called Safe Harbor, written by some Buddhists about Buddhist spiritual teachers who go astray sexually with their students. Uh, And you can get it now. You can download it. Look, it says Safe Harbor. Uh, You can download it for free. But no one had written about it extensively. And to be 100% clear here, the book was originally planned to be written by my assistant at the time. She had been the administrative assistant at the Minnesota Zen Center. And when things went down with some scandals about uh, Katagiri, who was the teacher there, she said, oh, I want to write this book. I said, go for it. And then she, after a while, she said, mm, "I don't want to anymore." I said, "Can I write it?" She said, "Sure, go for it." And so, um, you know, we found a publisher, Wisdom Publications, in uh, in Boston, and I give them a lot of credit because they are a, a Buddhist publisher at heart. They do other things, but that's their their central um, focus. And they, I didn't. They let me go ahead and and speak about uh, Buddhist teachers and other teachers who who go astray. Now. Let me say one more thing, and that is when I say go astray, I actually separate the categories. There's not one route. There are people who go astray, and then there's some who were predators from the beginning. I actually make 11 different distinctions between predators, narcissists, false brahmins. um, False uh,
0: brahmin, what does that mean?
2: Somebody who thinks they're entitled. They're not a real brahmin, but they think they're entitled to whatever it is that they want to grab or take.
0: And how are you defining brahmin?
2: Oh, you know, the Brahmin is 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 the kind of upper class from India, and the reason I call false Brahmin is it, it's a faux Brahmin, you know, I see. who the say priestly I can, caste. Uh, well, um, it's a class that says I can do anything I want I see. because I'm a Brahmin. Gotcha. The rules don't apply to me. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then there's people who just lose their way. I call them errants. And then there's people who say, who call themselves, so I call them exceptionalists. People saying, well, I wouldn't normally do that, but, and they make excuses. And in all these, I'm talking about people who, who've got, uh, in some way, a sexual relationship with, with one or more students. And in the case of the Predators and Libertines, it's usually with a whole string. Um, this doesn't mean that spiritual teachers should be celibate. I mean, if, if you're a Catholic one, yes, right? But it doesn't mean you have to be. It doesn't mean you can't have a partner. doesn't mean you can't be having great sex with your partner you know, half the day. This isn't about sex. This is about abuse of power. And over the years, between that and the new book, The uh, User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers, I've learned a lot more about personality disorders, uh, particularly sociopaths and narcissists and malignant narcissists, and ha- uh, recently have made the connection that those are the most dangerous people and those are the ones who, in large numbers, really kind of tend to become spiritual teachers.
0: Well, One way to, to get deeper into this actually would be to pick up on what you said about Chogyam mm-hmm. Trungpa. Let me just set up mm-hmm. for people yes. who don't know who he is, although there are plenty of podcasts where we talk to okay. his followers if, mm-hmm. if listeners want to go back. We we talked to his son mm-hmm. on one episode. We talked to the editor or the publisher of Mindful Magazine, yes. who's a, a, a follower of yes. his, although we didn't get into too mm-hmm. much detail, Alodro Rinsler, who's yep. a popular Buddhist teacher, Ethan Nickturn, another mm-hmm. popular Buddhist teacher, all of whom are followers of, mm-hmm. of this guy Trungpa. Mm-hmm. So he is a Tibetan mm-hmm. uh actually escaped from Tibet yes. uh in a quite traumatic fashion uh during okay. the Chinese invasion um and uh went on to go to uh England yes. where he actually took off the robes and went into a suit and tie um and was and wrote, wrote a bunch of books that are I'll, I'll admit I actually mm-hmm. haven't read any of them uh-huh. but are widely well regarded mm-hmm. including um uh, spiritual, uh, materialism. spiritual materialism cutting through spiritual cutting through spiritual materialism known. and so uh, he then went to the united states and canada and and built something called the shambhala school yes. and they now have naropa university Correct. and shambhala publications and uh, some and teaching centers in major cities all mm-hmm. over the united states and it's a really uh well-subscribed mm-hmm. lineage Mm-hmm. Um, and has gone on to actually be quite a kind of straight laced, uh, mm-hmm. from what I can tell, mm-hmm. organization. Although Trungpa himself was anything but straight laced, he embodied what he called crazy wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, he drank himself to death, from what yes, I can tell. Correct. Uh, slept with a lot of his followers, including yes, married followers. Correct. And um, and here is where I I get to the, the 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 nub of it for me is. Uh, the difference between him and Osho, and again, Mm -hmm. I'm just saying this is one guy observing, Mm -hmm. but Osho, at least from what I could tell watching that documentary, I didn't Mm -hmm. read any of his other stuff, I just watched the documentary, Mm -hmm. he didn't say anything Mm -hmm. enlightening to me. (laughs) Osho said nothing that I found (laughs) compelling. Indeed, Um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche Mm -hmm. clearly Mm -hmm. knew a lot Mm -hmm. and wasn't just smart, Mm -hmm. but seemed to be wise mm-hmm. and uh seem to at least to me as again as a as a guy who's mm-hmm. you know not an expert but ah, but you've been around been around He's Seemed been around. like a guy who'd done some deep meditation mm-hmm. so to me is such a mystery mm-hmm. and I would differentiate him from Osho, who I'm ready to believe could mm-hmm. be some of the things you said about mm-hmm. him but but Trumpa I don't know okay
2: well, I would love to speak to that, and actually, Dan, you've brought up it. a really important point that I'm delighted to have the chance for us to talk about. So the first is, hear, hear on everything you said about Osho versus Trungpa, because Trungpa was – you can argue that he was a spiritual genius, whereas uh, um, Osho had, no, had nothing of substance to offer. The, um, here is the part that so many people have trouble with, and this is why I wrote those two books. Because the question comes up over and over: How can you be so wise, so insightful? Possibly, be a spiritual genius or enlightened. And, and well, yes, indeed, enlightened. And although enlightened is such a loaded term, yeah. um, that, and a lot of people misuse it, and a lot of people uh, who are sociopaths and narcissists use it to manipulate other people. But the um, how can you have all that wisdom and at the same time such a lack of wisdom? That you're just uh, touching student on the, on the shoulder and say, uh, you're going to give me a b- tonight. Uh, I'll see you in, a, in an hour. I'll expect you there. So how is that possible? Okay. And the answer is, I'll give you a couple of answers. Number one, how is it possible that the cute little kitty that's purring in your lap will get up in five minutes and tear the head off a mouse and have the best time of its life? But the real answer, of course, is that we're human beings. We're contradictory. This is that is who he was. Stop trying, not you, anybody should stop trying to think that you're either one or the other. It is entirely possible to be quite wise and quite foolish at the same time. I mean, think of all the all the people, the brilliant people who got um, swindled out of all their money by Bernie Madoff, right? You'd think they would be smart enough not, not to know that. So it that is the history of... Of, re- of religious experience is people who are often very wise and sometimes very unwise simultaneously. And that's not going to change. And, you know, you're looking at me with a kind of bewildered expression, and when people do that, <laughs> my answer is you need, not to you, Dan, in particular, but to everyone, you need to get past that bewilderment because if you're stuck in, as long as you stay stuck in that bewilderment, you give those kind of people po- potentially, give the, them power over you.
0: I'm not yeah. – I'm actually not that bewildered. I'm I just, stand corrected. I no, 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 back. no, no. I mean, okay. I – I, I uh, that was not meant to be a critique. Okay. It's more that uh, – how can I say this? So I don't know mm-hmm. what I feel about enlightenment. Okay. But the description of it mm-hmm. in the scriptures, the Buddhist mm-hmm. scriptures, is quite comprehensive. The mm-hmm. uprooting of greed, hatred, yes. and delusion. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got these people – and I don't know what Trungpa said or didn't sure. say about the extent of his enlightenment. Uh-huh. But – the advertised benefits mm-hmm. of enlightenment are mm-hmm. pretty panoramic. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's mm-hmm. surprising mm-hmm. Uh, it, on one level mm-hmm. that you could still be capable of mm-hmm. such bad behavior.
2: And, the, and, of course, the answer is yes, they can, that, 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 that we have been fed a bill of um, – we've been fed BS about enlightenment being a threshold that is crossed. And yes, you can read some Buddhist scriptures where Buddha talks about never-returners and things like that. But it isn't true. It's, uh, enlightenment is, is, um, is not some permanent state because nothing's a permanent state. Mm. Think about it. So to say that someone somehow wasn't enlightened and now today is, and now that they've crossed that threshold, it's not like losing your virginity <laughs> where you, know, you, had that, you had that experience and that counts as, okay, I'm no longer A, I'm B. So you can have this profound enlightenment experience and then slip back, it ha- and it happens all the time, and you can go back and forth and back and forth, and that's what all experience is. Just like we can with all other experience. We can be happy. We can be sad. We can swear we'd never do something, and then we, and then we find ourselves doing it. Um, so if the
0: conditions are right,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you just – like no matter how much meditation I do, mm-hmm. if the conditions are right, I will be capable of heinous behavior.
2: Um well I I don't know if I do I want to <laughs> do I want to take a stand on that. Um Here's what here is what I would say. I suspect that's true. Um why don't would you riff about that a little bit because I think you I think you you, you would have some wisdom to offer. Depends
0: that. I mean it depends how you define heinous. Mm-hmm. But if somebody were trying to or succeeding at harming my son. There you go. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Would I would I follow the Buddhist precept of non harming in that moment? I think Mm -hmm. probably not. Mm -hmm. I think I would probably want to harm whoever was attempting to Mm -hmm. or succeeding at harming my son. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, uh, you know, or if you gave me a ton of power immediately, how would I how would that go? I mean, I already have power. I'm Mm -hmm. privileged in my current situation, Mm -hmm. no question about it. But you gave even more. Would I misuse it in Mm -hmm. ways that I I can't foresee right now? I I can't rule that out. I have enough humility about Mm -hmm. my makeup to
2: know. Well, let me add three pieces to that, any one of which could be relevant. The first is one of the things that we know about mental illness is – it can appear at any time in life, and with some mental illnesses, they kick in as you get older. So, um, so I'm just going to give you one scenario. I'm not I'm not projecting it onto any person in particular. But you're a let's imagine uh, you're a well-known spiritual teacher, and it turns out that you have um, bipolar disorder in your family. Now, I've I've had two friends who had bipolar disorder in their in their family, who were were they just lived really good, sane lives until their uh, late forties and then the bipolar kicked in and one of them bought a gun to kill himself the other one wound up being hospitalized okay. and that was that then only then did I learn that they had this these genes they told me afterwards so it could be that somebody has some kind of gene for some kind of mental illness that kicks in at an older age so that's that's one possibility Okay. Now, remember, let's, I don't want us to be grasping at, at good answers, because that could be totally false, but I'm giving you one possibility. Here's another. You mentioned Trungpa, and, uh, and he, was, he was an alcoholic. He drank, as you say, he drank himself to death. Now, I've written a lot on uh, addiction, because I'm a professional writer, and, and I've done a lot of writing for Hazelden Foundation, which uh, does a lot of work on published books on addiction and so on. And one of the things you know is that when alcoholism, once you reach a certain point... It it starts to screw up your brain. Yeah. You know, you no longer think straight. You no, no longer me, act. You know? Yeah, exactly. So that's another possibility. But let me give you a third, which is going to come seemingly out of left field. I make most of my living, even though I'm a writer and I'm a literary agent and I'm an editor and a writing consultant. I make most of my living as a ghostwriter. So I can tell you, you go, you go, how is this book so wonderful, and yet. Well I can tell you that some wonderful books were not so wonderful before they got into the ghostwriter's hands you mean before so, they so
0: the brilliant books could have been written by other people
2: Well in Trung, let me let me since since you brought it up in terms of Trungpa, they were his actual talks so you know the 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 center of what that uh, of of what's in these books came out of his mouth and of course he didn't invent all this he wasn't gotama the guy we now call buddha he had a long tradition behind him where he learned some of these things as well. Um but if you have a good editor or a good ghostwriter or a good collaborator then you then that person brings the best out of you it can often take material that still has wisdom in it but it isn't as cogent and it isn't as this and it isn't as that and isn't as successful. And that, of course that's that's our job as ghostwriters, right? So um so certainly he worked with somebody on um, Cutting through from spiritual materialism, but I'm not uh, singling out Trungpa for that, and I'm not singling out that book for that. That's often the case with books by many spiritual teachers.
0: You you talked a little bit about the history behind the first book on on this subject mm-hmm. uh, that your assistant was going to do, it, and then she decided not to. Uh-huh. And you said I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Did, did, did you have personal experience that mm-hmm. that made you really want to? You know, did you had you seen bad behavior sure. among your teachers?
2: Yes, yes. T- so, so uh, Kadiri, who was my uh, who was my teacher for several years at the the Minnesota Zen Center, and I want to make it clear, he wasn't a predator, he wasn't a narcissist, he wasn't a sociopath, he was the real thing, but he slipped, and he, and so he he was what I would call an errant. Okay, um, how did he slip? Well, he he, he had a uh, a long time relationship. With one of his priests, okay, and he was married, so so he was doing this outside of, um, you know, so he was in quotes cheating on his wife, okay, and um, then there were reports of other things as well. Um, I'm more concerned about the one with the priest because that that the priest came out and said, "Look, this is what happened," okay, and but then it is that same era. More and more stories were coming out about more and more teachers, and one of the things that you just I mean, again, I don't want to compare myself to you, but as as you're a journalist, you go out and you cover stories that need to be covered. As a writer of books, I see something that needs to be addressed that hasn't been addressed. So I say I want to write a book about it, and then I pitch a book proposal about it, and then I find a publisher, and then I write it. And I felt like this could, uh, both of these books, um, could make a significant difference, help people keep... um, uh, keep their feet on the ground, help them develop some discernment. But these were also these books are also not just about protecting your personal borders from from uh, people who will cross them. These are also primarily about people helping to understand themselves, so that they have realistic expectations of what a, a spiritual teacher is and isn't, and can do and can't do, and what to ask and not ask. Um, and if you if you get to be friends with any spiritual teacher, you know get get a beer in them, and they'll assuming they're allowed to have beer, and then they'll talk to you about oh the students they have all these crazy ideas about what I can do and what I can't and what I should do. You know should I take this job, Roshi? Should I take this job, so and so? Should I should I leave my partner? That is not a spiritual teacher's job. A spiritual teacher's job is to help you become more human, to to wise up, to grow up, to open up, to. Um, um to be I would just say to be more human, and to be clear, you are now a spiritual teacher, Dan, because you teach meditation you you go under that category. Mm-hmm. one of the great things I mean, I have a lot of complaints about that word spiritual, but one of the great things about the word spiritual is it's found a way to reunite the secular, what we call the secular the false dichotomy of secular and religious um and so you're spiritual teacher, so is. Um, you know, So is uh, any yoga teacher. So is somebody who teaches MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction.
0: Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network.
3: by Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at indeed.com/hire.
2: There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And start here.
0: Two-part question. Yes. Why do we have this deep need for... Gurus, spiritual teachers. And what kind of damage does it do when they misbehave slash victimize?
2: Uh, that's that's a wonderful question. So there's two different needs. We of course we all need human connection and of course we all need to grow. We need to grow up. That's that's how we're that's what we are as, as human beings. We have the potential to keep growing. So, um, what's so helpful about a spiritual teacher? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking about someone like you who is at, who wants to be of service to other human beings, who can um, help provide guidance. And you don't, you're not, you don't want their love, you don't want their money, you don't want that. You know, you you're not trying to get something from them. Um, is that true? Well, are you? Are you? Do you tell me? Are um, I mean, you don't need to be out there t- uh, teaching with Joseph.
0: Yeah, do but you? I sell books, so that's Shh. wanting money.
2: You, oh, sure. But are you requiring everybody to hand over money? Or are you saying no, here's a no, good book? No. Sure, that's totally fine. I'm a professional writer. I love it when people buy my books. Right. But you don't require them to. No. And even if you require them to read it, they can go to a library.
0: That's right. Right. And but oh, the other thing is, you said I don't want love, mm-hmm. but I do want love.
2: Do you want love from the people you teach?
0: Well, love depends I define it I, uh-huh. mean, I am like any other human mm-hmm. I am uh susceptible to flattery and praise and like it when people like what I do
2: mm-hmm. so I mean, actually that's a fantastic point so let me let me parse that a little bit. if it looks like that the spiritual teacher wants something from you, that is probably the easiest, clearest sign that there there's something uh, that's a yellow flag, if not a red flag so who would you rather have someone as a as a student when you teach meditation? Someone who kind of comes up to you and says, Dan, I like your autograph, and Dan, I just think you're so wonderful, or someone who seems to really want to um, be a better person and really interested in the meditation?
0: Now, the latter. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I'm not saying you have to be pure as the driven snow. Simply that you're, or that you can never have a um, a selfish impulse. I mean, if anything, meditation teaches us is that our heads are full of selfish impulses. Just walking here, right? Um, From the from the subway stop. Ooh, I want to eat that. Ooh, I want to eat. I want to eat that. Oh, I'd like to have sex with her. I mean, you know, all these these things these things bubble up, but they're just they're just thoughts. Uh, um, so it's not about the motive. But it's about the, what you could call the prime motive or, or what's, what's going on if somebody wants your money, if somebody wants your attention, if somebody wants your – if they're not putting your – if they're not first being of service to you, something's wrong. And that's the easiest and fastest way to tell if a, a spiritual teacher is somebody worth um, paying attention to. Now, let me speak to the second part of the question, which is why, why do people become devoted, not to why do people want – to, to learn and be better and to grow, because we um, any adult human being wants to do that, and that's why it's so important for them to go um, to someone like Joseph or you, or just just someone who understands the role. We should say
0: Joseph is Joseph Goldstein, yes. my meditation yes. teacher, who yeah. is truly amazing.
2: Yeah, he's he's the real thing. Um, he's honest. He's straightforward. He's um, he's not trying to to, um, uh, to get things from people. Honestly, I'm told he mostly just likes to ride his bike. <laughs> is that is – that, yeah. That's right. Yeah, he, yeah. He is.
0: He wants to be kind of left alone and yeah. meditate and ride his bike. Yeah. Uh, he is uh, – yeah, he is yeah. not um, – they, they – they, mm-hmm. uh, his – he and his co-founders of the Insight Meditation uh-huh. Society, which is a really flourishing organization in central Massachusetts and its sister organization, Spirit Rock in California, they deliberately mm-hmm. did not – they deliberately tried to avoid the guru thing. Yes, they, so there were yes, many indeed. teachers, and nobody was, you know, the center of attention yes. because they knew that was a yes. recipe, or they thought that might be a recipe for trouble.
2: And let me give a shout out here because his um, uh, his close collaborator Jack Cornfield, um, he and Sharon Salzberg, and um, you know Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, um, Jack Cornfield, they all kind of brought in large part Theravada Buddhism and meditation to america it was cornfield who published the first thing about sex and spiritual teachers in 19 roughly 1984 85 i might have the year wrong but it's around there and it was about um you can google it uh, just do jack cornfield sex guru and it was a wonderful article published in yoga journal and so i stand very much on jack's shoulders mm-hmm. in writing this book and that was that was sort of the first foray into it um many many years ago so to speak to what you said about why do people um, follow uh, slavishly, not follow in a kind of sane, healthy growth way? So for this, I would encourage people to look at uh, Bill Eddy's blog on Psychology Today. Um, uh, the new one is called Walls, War, Wall, Wars, Walls, and Parades, or something like that. But what in his whole—that's the new, the newest of them—but the the whole. A blog is called five types of people who can ruin your life and he's got a book by that same uh... that same topic he's probably the world's leading expert on personality disorders and but his whole thing uh, that he's suggesting and right now there's some evidence for it but it's mostly theoretical is that he suggests that you a certain percentage of human beings and he calls it the wannabe king theory and he admits it's it's still a theory which we you know it's got anecdotal evidence and a little bit of research behind it but we don't know yet um, that a percentage of people, that's just who they are. That's how they're born and that's, that's not how they were raised. That's their natural predilection. Now, maybe there's some nurture to it, it's not, but it, it is at least partly nature. And one of the reasons we know this is that people who were raised in the same family, you can have like uh, three siblings, two of them turn out normal and one has. They're either a sociopath or a narcissist or some other personality disorder and they want to be king or queen. And that's what they do. And they become these um, kind of um, all-encompassing leaders. Um, these Trangpas, these Rajanishas, these take-your-pick, take these Amas. There's there's just a thousand, they're, they're always there and they will always be there. They'll always be a percentage. And now this suggests, he also goes on to say, that roughly 30%, there is a little bit of uh, of, of evidence now, some studies for this, that 30%, this is a kind of lock and key mechanism, and that is, that uh, maybe what eight percent, nine percent will turn out to have this personality that may they may become a political leader, they may become a religious leader, but roughly thirty percent of the of the human race seems to have a similar predilection to follow them. So people wonder why is everybody following this crazy person? He, you know, he's got he's got fifteen plus Rolls Royces. This is um, Osho now, Raj, who was used to be called Rajneesh, and he has them doing these, these nutty things, and he's poisoning people. Why are people following him? And the answer is, it's not cognitive. It has nothing to do with what he says or why, or there's just some precognitive lock and key mechanism that's been activated. And you can see it if you watch that Rajneesh documentary. Yesterday, my cousin, who was born in 1939, he had just had a birthday, and he was given a New York Times dated from March of of 1939. It was the day after Hitler had just moved into Austria. And one of the, they interviewed an Austrian who said, I will do whatever Hitler says. He can do no wrong. Just like what people said about Rajneesh. Just like what people said about Trunkwood. And they actually, in that same New York Times article, they actually get two estimates of what portion of the population believed that. One was 20% and one was 33%.
0: When spiritual teachers stray, mm-hmm. to use your term, mm-hmm. what kind of damage does that do?
2: Oh, that's a great question. It honestly depends on the person. I've had people say, oh, yeah, Trungpa seduced me. I really enjoyed it. So it doesn't necessarily do any damage. But, it you know, it can. It cannot. The biggest thing, though, is... It depends. It depends why they're doing it, how they're doing it, because it's rare that I, the thing about Trungpa, and I want to give him some credit for this. He was a libertine. He was not. He would just say, he would have one of his Vajra guards, one of his assistants, tap somebody on the shoulder and say, "You're having. You're sleeping with Trungpa. He, he didn't yeah. hide it. He, he wasn't doing this stuff in secret. Exactly. So he wasn't keeping secrets from anybody. And he wasn't manipulating anybody exactly in that way. He was just being who he was. So, um, so you know, a lot of people, of course, you had the chance to leave. And uh, the poet W.S. Merwin, um, he wrote a very interesting account of uh, – he went up to a, a retreat with Trump's people. And it was all very cult-like there. And he and his uh, girlfriend actually wound up leaving. But um, there was some kind of orgiastic sex going on and crazy partying, and they invited him down, and he refused, and they broke his door down. I mean, it was nuts. So what all depends. The damage done is a combination of two things. Number one, who you are um, and your expectations, and number two, who the teacher is. But the worst cases are those where a teacher, you know, let's imagine you, I'm the teacher, and you're the student, and I decide I want to have, have sex with you, Okay. okay and I start using my authority as a teacher, and I start using what I know, at first I start treating you specially, and I go, "Oh, you know, you could really go far. And you could be enlightened in this lifetime. And I start, oh, you really? Yeah, and I make you my star student, okay? And I maybe give you some, um, some position of power, maybe you're my assistant, my secretary, my attendant, my something, okay? And it's clear that I've singled you out as something special. There's an endless array. In fact, in Sex and the Spiritual Teacher, I talk about all the different seduction techniques. There's actually a list. Um, uh, sex as a special blessing, se- um, uh, sex as a spiritual teaching, you know, I'm going to teach you something special through this. Okay. Or, oh, don't you want to be enlightened? You don't, I have something you don't, I'm going to give it to you. And guess what? That involves there's a long and venerable list of these because they've worked generation after generation and and the harm is, it has to do with the degree to which the person has been violated and the, the relationship has been been violated and let me say one more thing sure. because you brought up crazy wisdom that's one of the standard things it goes like this you know i'm just practicing crazy wisdom you don't see it because you know you're you're not advanced like i am I know what's going on. I can see it. It's This is crazy wisdom. I'm going to you to enlightenment. I'm going to, you know, and to any objection is, that's right. I have crazy wisdom. You don't, which boils down to, unless you do exactly what I tell you, you, um, you are going to be sort of mm, just an everyday Joe Blow, scared, uh, because that, that is people's deepest fear when they go into this, uh, when they get into something like meditation. Is that well? You know, it really turned out that it was just take your pick, Jesus or Mohammed or or Moses all along, and I should have just done whatever my parents did because they're telling me that I'm I'm the one who's done some weird thing. Okay?
0: So the the let's just before we close here, let's yeah. talk about the the sequel, mm-hmm. uh, which is Us- some...
2: user's guide to spiritual teachers. So yeah, well,
0: you're not saying don't hook up with a spiritual te- i mean link up with a spiritual mm-hmm. teacher and study with them because i am i'm sure you would say there's an enormous amount of value to be derived absolutely but what what do we how do we how do we choose
2: so we you first and foremost you need to build your own discernment you need to get in touch with what are you feeling what are you watching so and what do you want and what do you want that's wonderful thank you and so let me ask this you're, uh, I mean, your son's still much too young for, for this. But at a certain point, your son's going to say, "I want, uh, I want a girlfriend or a boyfriend, depending on how he what he grows into." And he sa- "And you'll say, what you know, what do I do? What do I look for?" And one of the things you're going to say is, um, "Well, take it slow. Don't jump into anything." Which is, and so I'm, I'm drawing an analogy here to say these are the same kinds of things you would say. Um, don't go just on um, if you feel a strong pull. That means fine. Pay a little more attention there. Don't run away from the pull, but don't just go with it because you feel because you feel a pull, because the pull could be it could be good, it could be bad. Watch the other people around this person. You know what are their what are their students? If they're a teacher, what are they like? And one of the things that happens if you look at Joseph's students, they're not crazy people. <laughs> they're not they're not and and it's got and your appeal. Obviously, as somebody who teaches with him, is oh here's a guy with his feet, you know, his feet on the ground. He's not crazy. He's not, you know, um, he's a guy we can trust, and he's got a family. He doesn't have a harem. He doesn't have 17 Rolls Royces. You know, none of that. Um, so um, uh, so look at look at how the person lives. Look at the people around them, whether it's their friends or their students. Um, what are they asking of you? Um, do they put your interests first? In fact, the reason I wrote both of these books was so that people wouldn't just go, oh, my God, it's all too scary or it's all too – it's too dangerous or if people have been hurt too much. I'm just going to join the Lutheran Church where my parents go, no, I want people to explore I want people to investigate different spiritual traditions. And by spiritual traditions, I mean everything from the supposedly secular, like mindfulness based stress reduction, all the way up to serious Catholicism, serious Judaism, you know, mystical Christianity, whatever they feel called to, uh, Sufism, if they're in the, uh, they feel called to that. Um, But all the same rules apply. First of all, trust yourself, build your discernment, don't run, don't just go by feel. Don't just go, oh, I feel a pull, so I will run, I will run after it, because that is probably, I mean, feel the pull, go ahead and feel the pull, but just take your time. And if there is something real that's being offered, then that will, then you'll feel it, you'll know it more over a period of months, um, just like you would, which you will, which if your friend said, oh, I just, I just met this wonderful man or woman We've known each other for two months, but I know it's the real thing. I'm going to get married. You're going to clap your ha- hand on your forehead and go, "Oh, oh my God! Don't do that!
0: <laughs> Don't do it right now!" Is Don't what it, I would, do it right yes. now. Yes, I, I haven't thought deeply about this, but I, one of the things that it strikes me, one of a rule of thumb I use mm-hmm. when it comes to spiritual teachers is, do they have a sense of humor about
2: themselves? Oh, that's a great one. Yes. Do they? In fact, in both books, I have a long list of how to, of what things to avoid and what things to look for. Just like that. Yes, sense of humor. If they're willing to say I was wrong and I'm sorry. If they can't say I was wrong, just straight out. Or I'm sorry. Or I made a mistake. Run away. That's the first and foremost. If they can't laugh at themselves, absolutely. And there's a, again, there's a long list. If they ask for a lot of money, if they, if they uh, wall off their community from the rest of the world in any way, shape, or form, if they develop their own kind of inner language that only they understand, um uh if they if they want you to sacrifice so much for the for the group or for them that it hurts your health or mental health, that's also a problem mm. of course, if they demand strict obedience, that's an issue too, and so on and on. but I love the sense of humor one that that is one of the most important
0: as we close here um let's go into what I call jokingly the plug zone. Can, Can you? you just plug? Away here, shamelessly tell mm-hmm. us about where we can find you on social media. If you're there, mm-hmm. website, mm-hmm. Um, which books sure. do you want us to know about. Give us, Sh- give us everything.
2: Sure. Um, so first of all, the books are uh, "Sex and the Spiritual Teacher" um, and "The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers," and of course, you can get them anywhere on the online or in bookstores. Any bookstore can order it if they don't already have it in. Um, and the website that supports them is called thespiritualteachersite.com. And it, it's uh, some interviews with me, uh, look, it has information about both of the books. I would encourage people also to, I mean, use use the, the Internet to Google anybody that they're interested in, whether they're a teacher or a writer or a spiritual leader. Um, and if you start to see the same kind of comment appearing, trust those, because there is wisdom um, in many people's comments. Over and above that with social media, I confess that I have ta- um, I haven't taken them down yet, but, uh, um, I presume you've heard about, uh, Jaron Lanier's. Do you know Jaron Lanier? He invented, um, he's been a long time visionary. Um, he invented virtual reality. I mean, literally, he yeah. invented it. Um, so he's a long time techie. Um, I think he works for Microsoft now, but his new book is called 10 Arguments um, about Leaving, or something like 10 Arguments for Leaving, all social media, and he's mm. off. And they're very compelling arguments. So my social media sites are going down. Um, but the website is still there, and people can contact me through it. Um, and yes, you know, he, uh, some of you are going to send me hate mail because I've said something bad about your spiritual teacher, but that's the other thing we all have to do. We all have to tell the truth to each other. We all have to be discerning and not just take everything we hear at face value. Yes, we need to investigate it for ourselves, which by the way is what Buddha said on his deathbed, right? He said don't t- don't follow anything just because some particular person said it or you read it in a book. Question it, test it out against your own experience, um, and then if it if it looks and feels and is demonstrated to be wholesome, follow it. And so that's the advice I would give to everybody and that's the advice that undergirds both of the books.